Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It is possible to confidently believe that you know God, that he loves and welcomes you, and to wholeheartedly live as if that's true. Let me say that again. It is possible to confidently believe that you know God, that he loves and welcomes you, and to wholeheartedly live as if that's true. Now, if you're a regular here at church and perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, that probably doesn't sound uh, like news to you. But to most of our world, that is an incredibly controversial statement. And even to us as Christians, even if we agree with it, we might struggle to live it out. Let me take it one clause at a time. I've said that it's possible to confidently believe that you know God. But surely that's a ridiculous statement. After all, God is invisible. We can't see him. No scientific test can reveal him. And even if he did exist, what does it mean to know God? How do we even know he's a personal being? The greatest minds of our world have debated for thousands of years about who or what God is. And we, a group of not particularly intelligent people, sorry, in northern England, reckon we know God personally. It's just arrogant, isn't it? What about the idea that we can be confident that God loves and welcomes us? Well, again, a sceptical world will say, how can you be so sure of yourself? Do you think you're so special that God loves you and not other people? And even as Christians, we might struggle with this one because we know our own sin, don't we? We know the ways we fail. We know the thoughts and words and deeds which we're ashamed of. We know how we've hurt other people. Perhaps we've broken relationships with other people because of the way we've acted. And that's just other people. Surely a pure and holy and perfect God cannot keep putting up with me and my repeated sin. And finally, I've said it's possible to wholeheartedly live as if that's true to give our lives to God's service, to make decisions with our time and our resources and our energies that will cost us, to commit to a group of people in a local church for the long term, even if that's hard. We might think, but what if I'm wrong? What if all this is actually untrue? What if I suffer as a result of it? What if it all goes wrong? Isn't it better to hedge our bets slightly? Isn't total commitment to Jesus just a bit unlivable, a bit unworkable in the real world? Well, in today's passage, I want us to see that this statement is not arrogant, it's not unrealistic, it's not wishful thinking. If you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, you can confidently believe that you know God, that he loves you and welcomes you, and you can wholeheartedly live as if that's true. In this passage, the author gives us two reasons for that confidence and two implications for what it means. They're printed on the inside of your sheet if you want to follow along. So first, let's see the first reason we can be confident because Jesus, our high priest, has gone through the heavens. 
I look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The first thing we have to note here is that we have a great high priest. Now, that might seem like a strange idea, so let me flesh out the context of that. Under the old covenant, when God set apart Israel to be his chosen nation, he gave them priests under the leadership of the high priest. The first high priest was Moses' brother Aaron. Now, later in this series, we're going to see what these high priests actually did, the work they had to do. But the whole point of a high priest was that he was a mediator between Israel and God. You see, Israel were a chosen nation, but they were not a sinless nation. They were sinners just like we are. And yet the pure and perfect and holy God had chosen to put himself in their midst. And so God appointed priests as mediators, as go-betweens. The people were, relate, were to relate to God through the priests. And in chapter 5, just after the section we had read, we see the qualifications for a priest. They had to be chosen by God. They had to bring offerings, animal sacrifices. And they had to be sympathetic. And we'll come back to that last one. But the role of the priest was to act as a bridge between God and man, to represent the people before God. In fact, the high priest wore a breastplate with all the names of the tribes of Israel written on it. So that when he went into the temple... When he drew near to that place where God had particularly put his presence, it was as if the whole nation went with him. When he made sacrifices, he did so on behalf of everybody. The relationship between God and Israel was, if you like, concentrated like light through a lens onto this one man. That might seem like a strange idea, but actually, if you think about it, it's not an uncommon idea in our world at all. We might not call them priests, but there are lots of situations where we send people to represent us in a job that we can't do ourselves. So here are a couple of examples on the screen. This lovely couple is Jason and Laura Kenny. They're Olympic cyclists, and they're very good at their job. Uh, They've won 12 Olympic gold medals between them. And you see them there in that picture with uh, the great big Team GB symbol on their chests. And that's because when they go to the Olympics, they are representing us. If if you're a British person, if you're not from the UK, I'm sure you can think of examples from your own nation who probably aren't as good as these guys, but you know what I mean. Um, Now, when they go to the Olympics, they represent us, such as that when they succeed, we all shout and cheer and say, hooray, we won. Now, in one sense, we didn't do anything. We just sat on our sofas and watched these phenomenal athletes do what we couldn't possibly do. But that's why we can say we won. Because they represent us to do something we can't. Or to, here's another example. This lady, apparently, is Dame uh, Karen Pierce. If you know who this is, well done. I have no idea. But she's apparently the UK's ambassador to the USA. And so you can see her there with her United Kingdom plaque in front of her. And again, the idea is the same. She represents us to the US president, to the US government. She is our mediator to do something we cannot do. You and I cannot pick up the phone and chat to Joe Biden. But Karen can. And it's her job to keep us on good terms with the United States. So in a sense, Jason and Laura and Karen are sort of priests. Well, the author calls Jesus our priest. He's not just our prophet, the one who tells us about God. He's not just our king, the one who leads us to obey God. He is our priest, the one who represents us to God. The one who goes, bearing our name, representing us to do something that we can't. So what's special about this priest? What has he done that Aaron, for example, couldn't do? 
Well, it says here that Jesus has gone through the heavens. We hear a lot of talk, don't we, and sometimes we use this language, about being on a spiritual journey. Perhaps people say that, that they're on a journey with God. And that's not always wrong language, but what often people mean by that is that they're trying out different ways of relating to God. Perhaps they're trying a new practice or a new ritual. Perhaps they're grappling with a new doctrine. Perhaps they're experimenting with different religions. So the idea of a spiritual journey becomes a way of saying that your beliefs and your religious practices are always in a state of flux. You're shifting, you're changing, you're trying to find the thing that works for you. Now, to a person like that, the statement that I made at the beginning, that someone who's trusting in Jesus can be completely confident that they know God and they're wholeheartedly committed to living for him, etc., etc., that sounds completely crazy. But what we have to understand is that the Bible is much more interested in Jesus' spiritual journey than ours. Last week, if you were with us, we saw the shape of that journey, how Jesus began at the highest of heights as, as he's God himself how he took on humanity, came down to earth to live and walk among us in lowliness and weakness, how he went to the cross to bear the wrath of God on our behalf, how he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven to sit down at God's right hand, a man sitting in the presence of God and ruling over all creation, fulfilling God's original design for his world. We saw this swoop, this U-shape, which rescues us from slavery as he takes hold of our hands to pull us out from under God's judgment. Well, here we have the same thing again. Our high priest, verse 14, is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is God himself. What a perfect mediator. Surely, Jesus is qualified to represent us to God because he is God. He is God's divine Son. But here, the author focuses on Jesus' ascension, the fact that he has gone through the heavens, When Jesus returned to heaven, returned to his Father's right hand to the throne room of God, it says in Acts 1 that he literally went up into the sky and a cloud hid him from the disciples' sight. Now, we might think that's very strange. If God has made himself known through the person of Jesus, if he is our ambassador, our mediator, our priest, surely it's better if we can see him. It's one of the reasons people find it so difficult to believe that we can have confidence before God, because he's invisible. And even the particular human person of Jesus, who apparently made God visible for a while, even he is hidden from our sight now. But if we understand the role of the priest under the old covenant, we're going to realize that Jesus being hidden from our sight is actually good news. It's actually a very good thing indeed. It's actually the reason we can have confidence. Think about the high priest and the old covenant. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go with his sacrifice through the curtain of the temple into the most holy place to represent the people, to do what only he could do, which was to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. For about 20 minutes a year, I don't know how long it takes to do it, but about 20 minutes a year, he would be hidden from their sight, behind the curtain. For about 20 minutes a year, the people would, through their mediator, dwell in the very presence of God. But after that 20 minutes, he would come back into view, probably breathing a massive sigh of relief. The high priest's entrance into the most holy place signified that God had accepted the people's sacrifice. But the high priest's exit from the most holy place signified that the problem of sin had not yet been fully dealt with. 
See, Aaron, when he was in the most holy place, he couldn't sit down. He couldn't make his home there. He couldn't have a cup of tea with God. It didn't work like that. And the next few chapters of Hebrews explain why. Because the next few chapters of Hebrews goes on to explain that the priests themselves were sinners. That they, are not, they were not on good terms with God because of their sin. That's why they had to make sacrifices for themselves as well as for the rest of the people. So imagine Karen Pierce. She publishes a YouTube video where she mocks Joe Biden, calls him an idiot, says that America is a tin pot dictatorship that's not worth our time, and then tries to turn up for work the next morning. She would not be a very good ambassador at that point, would she? She would be unqualified to do her job because her relationship with Joe Biden and the rest of the United States would be broken. In the same way, Hebrews explains that the line of high priests in Israel were sinful men who therefore could not represent us to God. The priests were not up to the job. It also explains, and we'll come back to this on Boxing Day, that the animal sacrifices that the priests had to make were not good enough to cover our sin. Because they were animals, and an animal cannot properly stand in for a human being. It cannot make propitiation for us. So again, imagine Jason and Laura Kenny turning up to the Tokyo Olympics, and they've been told that their high-spec Lotus track bikes haven't arrived. They're going to have to use penny farthings instead. They would struggle, I think. So not only were the priests themselves not up to the job, the sacrifices, the tools of their trade weren't up to the job either. Come back after Christmas to find out more about that. But the point is, when this high priest, the priest in the Old Covenant, went behind the curtain into the earthly temple, the place where God had symbolically put his presence, they got in and they got out quick. Because really the whole system was not up to the job. And even the priests, even the people's mediators, could not spend any time dwelling with their God. And that means we, Israel, the people they represented, could not really spend time dwelling with their God either. But now Jesus has gone through the heavens. He is hidden from our sight, and he's been hidden from our sight for a while. Listen to what the angels say when they speak to the disciples at Jesus' ascension. This is from Acts 111. It's on the screen. The angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And just say, what are you doing staring, waiting for him to come back? He's passed out of our sight because he's gone behind the curtain to his father. He's gone to heaven, not for 20 minutes, not to scurry out, breathing a sigh of relief. There's no point standing there watching the sky. It's not going to be any time soon because he's taken his permanent seat at his father's side to dwell with God, to be our permanent mediator, our permanent ambassador by his side. When he comes out from behind the curtain, as it makes clear later, it will only be to usher in the final rule of God. And so this tells us that he is the priest who is qualified to be our mediator, qualified to be our representative, because he is the sinless son of God. It tells us that his is the sacrifice that God permanently accepts, because it's the propitiation of a willing and perfect, obedient man. Jesus has gone through the heavens. That means he is the ambassador between man and God that we can really trust. And because of this, the author says, verse 14, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. I hope you see that not only can we hold firmly, we must. Jesus is the only priest who can actually do the job, the only sinless son of God who can represent us to his father, the only one who's made a perfect sacrifice 
The only man who is seated in heaven, who is hidden behind the curtain, enjoying full, unbroken fellowship with our Creator. As chapter 6, verse 9 put, puts it, 19, sorry, Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul behind the curtain. He is there and will not be moved. And so if we hold on to him, we will not be moved. Well, that's easy to say, isn't it? Just hold on. But we face pressure to let go of Jesus, don't we? It might be good news that we can't see Jesus just now, but it is tempting to live by sight and not by faith. Others may mock us for believing in a God we can't see and trusting in a priest we can't see. In fact, the whole idea of committing yourself to one thing, to dedicating your life to a pursuit, a pursuit which is not about you and fulfilling your dreams and your destiny, but you serving another and being part of a community which serves another, it's strange and alien to our self-centered and individualistic world. And as well as that, we have our own doubts and struggles, don't we? So how do we hold on? Well, the author's already given us one key to holding on. It's back in chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. It's on the screen, or you could turn back to it, where he says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God's. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, a vital key to holding on to Jesus is to be part of a local church which encourages each other to do so. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said this on the screen. Therefore, the Christian needs another who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. We can and we must encourage each other to go to Jesus, to call out to him together to meet our, to meet our needs. And what happens when we do? How do we know that we'll be accepted even when we continue to sin? Well, that's the other reason to be confident. We can be confident because Jesus, our high priest, was tempted and sinless. Look at verse 15 with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. I mentioned earlier that one of the qualifications of the high priest under the old covenant was that they had to be sympathetic. Look over at chapter 5, verse 2, and you'll see that. This is talking about the old covenant uh, priest. It says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, <clears throat> since he himself is subject to weakness. You see that the priest had to deal gently with sinners. They, they had to be kind. And the reason for that was that they themselves were sinners. So imagine Hilkiah, let's say, the high priest, looking out from the temple one day, sipping a cup of tea or whatever they, they drank. And he sees young Ethan coming up to the temple courts. And Ethan's looking a bit embarrassed. He's looking a little bit sheepish. And not only because he's literally holding a sheep. No, he's, a, he's, a, thank you. he's embarrassed because he came yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and he's going to have to tell Hilkiah that he did it again he sinned again he needs to make a sacrifice again 
Now, it would be wildly inappropriate for Hilkiah to fly into a rage at that point, to berate Ethan for continuing to sin in this way, to yell and curse and send him away and tell him to just do better. It would be inappropriate because Hilkiah knows that he's a sinner too. He would know that he too sinned every day. And so if he was doing his job properly, he'd put his arm around Ethan and he'd accept his sacrifice and he'd say, yes, yes, me too. Now, that's a helpful thing to reflect on and remember in our own lives, whether we're dealing with a friend or a child or someone we have some kind of responsibility for, that when people sin, we need to remember that we too are sinners. doesn't mean their sin doesn't matter. doesn't mean that there shouldn't be repentance and forgiveness. doesn't mean that it, uh, sin won't hurt and that things won't take time to heal. But it does mean that none of us can look down on sinners as if we were somehow better than them. It means that flying into rages with people is completely inappropriate, even if their sin is not the same as our sin. We must humbly remember that to deal gently with fellow sinners. But we might be thinking, hang on a minute, doesn't this make Jesus less sympathetic to us? How can he sympathize with us when he's never sinned? It says that in verse 15, he was without sin. So how can he possibly sympathize with us sinners the way we sinners sympathize with sinners? I think the mistake we make when we think like that is to subconsciously assume or perhaps consciously believe that it must have been easy for Jesus to resist sin. After all, he's God and God cannot sin. The theological word for that is that God is impeccable. He is unable to sin because of the perfection of his character. And so Jesus surely found it easy to resist sin. It's like going into a maths exam with a calculator in your pocket. It's cheating, isn't it? That is not the picture of Jesus we get in the Gospels. We don't see a Jesus who is serenely sailing through life, finding things super easy because he's God and everything just comes really easy to him. No, Jesus lived a fully, fully human life. He got tired and thirsty and hungry and lonely. He ate, he drank, he went to the toilet. And if the thought of that utterly shocks you, perhaps it's worth considering that perhaps we have too sanitized a view of Jesus. This is admittedly mind-blowing stuff. How can someone who is both the perfectly self-sufficient God who needs nothing also be the person who gets tired and hungry? If our mind is blown, that's exactly the right reaction. We're, We're delving into deep mysteries here that we're not really supposed to fully understand. But the testimony of the New Testament is clear. God, Jesus lived and worked and suffered and was tempted as a man. Look what Peter says about him in Acts 10, 37 to 38. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And if you see there, that Peter doesn't say Jesus went about doing good because he was God and God is good. That's true, of course. But here he says the reason Jesus went about doing good was not straightforwardly because he was God, but because he was a genuinely spirit-filled man. He is, remember, as Hebrews teaches, the better Adam, the better Moses, the better Joshua, the better Aaron. None of that means anything if his life is so alien to ours that it means he's basically a different species. No, Jesus was fully human in every way. So what does this mean here when we're thinking about Jesus being tempted well it means that Jesus knows what it's like to battle against sin 
as a man. It's a battle he won every time, praise God. He never gave in to the temptations to sin. Just imagine that for a moment, by the way. Jesus never snapped at an annoying person, never looked at a beautiful woman lustfully, never disobeyed his parents as a child, can you imagine? Never even wasted a thought on any of those things. But all that time when Jesus was battling against sin, I think we are right to say that it was not a markedly different experience for him than it is for us. He still had to battle. He still had to work. He still had to discipline himself and deliberately say no and consciously turn away. Yes, he was God and therefore he could not sin. But the reason he did not sin was he, was because he fought sin as a spirit-filled man. The theologian Bruce Ware describes it like this. Imagine a man who's trained all his life to swim the English Channel. And his friends are a bit worried about him. So they decide to follow him in a boat just in case. And he sets off on his swim. He swims and he swims and he gets tired, but he keeps going and he makes it to France. Now, if you were to say of that man, why couldn't he drown? The answer is because the boat was there. But why didn't he drown? He didn't drown because he kept on swimming. Jesus couldn't sin because he was God, but he didn't sin because he fought temptation as a spirit-filled man. Now, there is a difference between us and Jesus. Jesus did not have a sinful human nature like ours. He didn't have a heart that led him astray. But he did have a weak human body in a fallen human world. Facing the full weight of temptation Satan could possibly throw at him. No one has ever been tempted uh, like Jesus was because of the way Satan uh, tempted him. If you and I fail, if you and I sin, that's one thing. If Jesus sins, all God's purposes are ruined. So we can see in the Gospels the devil throwing everything he can at Jesus. We saw it last time in the, in the temptation in the wilderness. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is referenced in chapter 5, verse 7, when Jesus is on his knees in tears, in agony, because of the awful horror of the cross which awaits him. The temptation to disobey God at that point to run away from the cross, to not face the judgment of God for a billion people's sin. We will never understand that level of temptation. And Jesus faced it. And Jesus said, after a long struggle, a tearful struggle, he said, not my will but yours be done. He has faced worse temptation than we have. He has suffered more under temptation than we have, largely because when we face temptation, lots of the time we just give in. And the temptation goes away. But Jesus never did that. He resisted and he resisted and he resisted until temptation itself went away. So what does that mean when we come to Jesus? When we come to Jesus together as a church, when we encourage one another to do that, it means we come to the one who sympathizes. Now Jesus' sympathy does not mean that he turns a blind eye to sin or lets us off or excuses us because we're weak and tempted. No, sin is still sin, when it, even when it's committed under pressure. Even when we sin because we're sinned against, it's still sin. Sin might be explicable, you might understand why someone sinned, but it's never justifiable. It's never the right thing to do. Jesus sympathizes not because your sin doesn't count or because your sin doesn't matter. He sympathizes because he's been there and he knows what it's like. 
Just because he is unseen and in heaven does not mean he is far away, cold and distant, watching and waiting for us to fail. No, he stands by us in our weakness and he draws near to sinners. That's what the word sympathy means. Both in Greek and in English, it means to suffer with someone. The word is only used once uh, one other time in the Bible, in Hebrews 10, verse 34. It's on the screen, just so you can see that. Where he says uh, to them, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do you see there? The Hebrew Christians stood with those who had been imprisoned by their faith and for their faith and shared their faith. They suffered with them. They sympathized. Well, that's what Jesus' sympathy means. That's what it is. It was a pattern throughout his ministry. From his baptism, when he identified himself with repentant sinners, to the time he spent, all the times he spent eating and drinking with sinners and suffering the same insults from the Pharisees that they heaped on those that they considered morally beneath them, to when he stooped to wash his disciples' feet all the way to the cross, and there in the cross was Jesus' full sympathy, his full and final suffering with and for sinners. His sympathy, you see, is not just an emotional reaction to our sin. It's not just that he's a kind and lovely and gentle man, although he is all those things, praise God. It's that he can be those things to us and not a consuming fire of judgment because that judgment has been taken on the cross. His sympathy towards us is a reflection not just of who he is, a kind and lovely man, but of who we are in Christ And because of what he has done, we are forgiven, justified, declared righteous. All our sins, past, present and future, paid for by the sympathy of the cross. And so what does that mean for us? It means we can and we must draw near. Look at verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does it mean to draw near to God? Well, drawing near was what the Israelites did at the temple. Check out Hebrews 10 verse 1 if you want to confirm that. They drew near to the temple to see the priest and to make their sacrifice. The key question is, we've already considered this, what happened next? Well, just like the high priest drew near to God in the most holy place, then quickly came out again, so the normal everyday Israelite would draw near to the temple, make their sacrifice, and then go home. What they didn't do was make their sacrifice, hear the pronouncement of forgiveness, and then wander into the most holy place for a piece of cake with God. No, under that system, there couldn't be that communion with God, that fully restored sense of relationship, which meant that sinners could dwell with God and really draw near. No, they had to draw away. And that's because, as I've already discussed, the priestly system did not work for that purpose. It was never meant to work for that purpose. The priests were bad ambassadors offering ineffectual sacrifices who could not ultimately bring people to God. See, it's all very well having someone gentle and kind and sympathetic, lovely Hilkiah, a lovely guy. But if they can't actually forgive your sins and restore your relationship with God, that's not much good. The author Stephen Fry has repeatedly said that he prefers the Greek gods to the Christian gods. Because, precisely because, the Christian God is perfect and doesn't sin. 
He says this quote on the screen. Uh, then the Greek gods, they're not just distant noble beings that know everything and can see everything and judge us. They have the same weaknesses humans do. And apparently that's a good thing. But surely you can't trust such a God to do you any good. And similarly, you couldn't trust the old covenant priest to bring you to God. No, that entire priestly system was given by God in order to point forward to something better. And now something better is here. Jesus, the better high priest, offering the better sacrifice that can actually take away our sin. He's the one that's gone through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God. And so we can see the difference it makes here. Because we are called not to keep our distance from God as the people in the old covenant were called to do. Keep back. No, we are called to draw near. And not to draw near to an earthly temple, to a box in Jerusalem, but to the very throne room of heaven. I wonder what special place in this world you wish you had access to. The dressing room at Lord's Cricket Grounds. Cabinet room at number 10. Some nice cheese and wine there, apparently. Perhaps, children, you've always wondered what it's like in the school staff room. What a special place. Well, if you are trusting in Jesus, you have access to a much, much better place than any of those. You can have full access to the throne room of heaven through the work of your high priest Jesus, and you are invited, you are commanded to draw near. How do we do that? We're doing it right now. As we gather around God's word and hear and pray and sing as we meet together and open the Bible and talk to God in our groups, as we cry out to God in the middle of the night in pain, as we work through the partnership directory to pray for our church family, as we say sorry for sin and ask for forgiveness, as we open an advent calendar and pray with our children around the breakfast table, all these things we are drawing near to the throne of grace. And what do you get from the throne of grace? Verse 16 says, you get grace. That's an easy one, isn't it? Clues in the name. Often in the ancient world, you would approach a king's throne with fear and trepidation because you wouldn't know what you'd get. Perhaps the king would be, in a, would be favorable to your request or perhaps he'd be in a bad mood that day and you'd end up in his dungeons. But because of the work of Jesus, our high priest, we can always expect, as verse 16 says, to receive mercy and fine grace to help us in our time of need. In any and every situation, we can expect to find at the throne of grace more than we deserve. Precisely what we don't deserve. We deserve judgment and yet we get grace. We can find the solution to our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins, acceptance with our gods, and the strength to keep on living wholeheartedly for him. So in conclusion, it is possible to confidently believe that you know God's that he loves and welcomes you, and to wholeheartedly live as if that's true. It is possible by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Perhaps that's new to you. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you're a visitor. You want to know more about that. If that's you, uh, come and talk to me or anybody you've seen up at the front or talk to the friend who brought you. We'd love to tell you more. But whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time this morning, I want to invite all of us to draw near to the throne of grace. And I'm going to do that using the prayer that you'll find at the bottom of your sheet there. If you want to make this your prayer, then please feel free to echo those words in your heart and say amen with me at the end. I'll let you read it through a second and then let's, well, we'll pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I admit that on my own I cannot draw near to you because of my sin. Thank you for Jesus, our high priest. Thank you that he lived the perfect life, died the perfect death on my behalf, and has ascended to be our perfect mediator. Please help me hold firmly to faith in him, to come to him for grace, and to live wholeheartedly for him for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.